Hello, church. If you'd open to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll only be reading verse 8 this morning as we continue this study in 1 Timothy on the doctrine of the church. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, this is the word of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Father, Lord, we want to understand this passage rightly, but oh, the vanity to understand this and not do it. The absurdity to claim to be your people and to study these things and understand them and then to not be doers of the word. And so, Lord, help us to be doers of your word today. We pray even for the women and the children that they would benefit, even though we focus on the men, Lord, that, that all in this room would, would gain wisdom from this and help. And so help us with these things for your name's sake, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Carl Truman uh, published an article, a really short, helpful article recently, in which he said this, Given the chaotic and volatile nature of the culture, what should the church focus on in her teaching? And he said the first uh, the first answer is always the whole counsel of God to preach all of the Scripture. But then he went on and, and said, uh, in the 4th century, they wrestled with the doctrine of God. In the 5th century, with Christology, the Reformation focused on the sacraments and salvation. And I'll, I'll add my point here, the Puritans on the doctrine of the church. And then Truman says this, but in our age... What are we to wrestle with, if not with the question of anthropology? That is, what does it mean to be human? This is the issue that lies often unseen behind many of the other prominent debates of our age. And so you all know, even a few weeks ago in that marriage series, we spent six weeks at the beginning of that looking at gender roles specifically in marriage, but we got into the home, we got even into the culture, but we did not get into the church. And that's what we want to focus on for the next two weeks. Um, we didn't talk about really the effects of feminism as it relates to uh, the church creating what I would call androgynous churches, churches without gender distinction. Uh, and, and the problems that that has created. And, and here's what's going on behind this. I think it's helpful for us to remember. Never in history, to our knowledge, has there been such an attack on the image of God as it relates to the maleness and femaleness of His image bearers. Never. Uh, this is the attack of our day against the doctrine of God. Uh, people hate the image of God. And we see it expressed in abortion, for example, with the killing of innocent lives. But we see it expressed in other ways, like gender ideologies, uh, race, uh, radical feminism, uh, which seeks to remove all differences between men and women and to create a type of humanity uh, that isn't 
distinctly feminine or masculine where these differences don't exist. And I'm not just talking about bathroom uh, issues or women's sports or things like that, but eliminating all gender distinctions in the family and in the church. And here's what we have to understand. When we lose gender distinctions in the home and in the church, we begin to lose them in culture, which is what we're seeing. But it's because we've lost them in the church and because we've lost them in the family that we begin to lose them at the cultural level. And this is why it's so important when we come to, to passages of Scripture that deal with gender, we, we slow down, especially in our day and age, and we make sure we listen to what God says on these things. And so today I want to look at biblical masculinity uh, in this verse, and the next week we'll press on into the rest of this section and we'll look at biblical femininity um, as we get into this text, I think the first thing to figure out is this. Who's Paul speaking to? Who, who is his intended audience with what, is, with what he, he's saying? Because there are some, uh, I think wrongly, who have taught that Paul is only speaking to the Ephesian Christians. That's his audience. So if you're not a man in Ephesus, this doesn't apply to you. Uh, I, I don't think that that would be accurate. It certainly overlooks verse 8 where we see this little phrase. In every place. I desire that in every place. I think gives a general instruction to all men in all churches throughout all of time that these things are applicable. All the commentators point this out uh, that Paul addressing uh, Paul is addressing common temptations first with the men and then second with the women. And there are temptations that didn't just exist in Ephesus. They exist in our church. They exist in all churches. These are common temptations for women that we'll deal with next week and men uh, this week. And so let's start with the men because the text does. Look again at verse 8. I desire then that in every place, or we could say place of worship, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now again, whether, whether the men in Ephesus had stopped praying, we don't know. In our day, many men have. And the men in Ephesus should listen to what Paul is saying to Timothy, and then Timothy to them, and then we need to pay attention to these things as well. I want us to look at three things from this text about the men. And the first is this, the importance of male leadership in prayer. The importance of male leadership in prayer. It, let me back up a step. If I were to ask us, what are the biggest problems with, with biblical manhood in the church? And I'm not just talking about in our church, I'm talking about all churches everywhere. What's and not men in culture, men in their families, but just the church. What are the biggest problems? I, I really think that the answer that would be collective among us would be a lack of leadership. That the, the primary and ultimate problem with men in the church abroad is a lack of leadership. That you could find many, many problems Resulting from that, and therefore women step up in many churches to lead. Uh, you see other times when it's not women that step up, but young, unqualified men. We could even say boys or teenagers that are being put in 
central roles of leadership in the church, who knows how much damage is being done in many churches in our day because young, unqualified men are put forth by the church because there's no older men to do it. Uh, But even beyond that, maybe you have an older man, but that older man isn't content to be an older man. He wants to be a young man. He wants to dress like a young man and talk like a young man. And, and how many churches are suffering? I mean, tell me these are not problems in our day with biblical manhood. And rightly did the prophets prophesy of cultures under God's judgment, Ecclesiastes 10.16, Woe to you, O land whose king is a youth. Isaiah 3.4, I will make boys their princes and children will rule over them. Verse 12, oppressors are children and women rule over them. Those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. And listen, let me be very clear. The problem is not women and the problem is not children or youth. The problem is the men not assuming the responsibility to lead as they should. And so we need to back up and ask, what type of leadership is Paul calling for in the church and we're going, to, we're going to see this more as we press on in 1 Timothy, but we could look at chapter 3 where he talks about biblical qualifications for elders who are men, deacons who are men, it seems to us. We could look at chapter 2, uh, verse, or, or uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, which says this, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So God has always placed a heavy responsibility on men. That's always been the way that he has worked. We know in the garden, God made Adam the federal head of humanity. Van Til explained Adam's headship like this. Man was to be prophet priest and king over God's created world. A man as a prophet is an interpreter of the world. A priest man is to dedicate this world to God, and a a kingly man was to rule over it for God. And we know Adam failed at this, and then God didn't give up on men after that failure. Outside of Eden, who did he choose to be the father of all mankind? He chose the male, Abraham. Then we see the male patriarchs and Jacob and Joseph and Isaac and these these male patriarchs. We find Noah, who God chose to save humanity, his wife and his children and all living and these living animals. We see Moses, God used to save Israel from slavery and Aaron uh, to help him speak the law to God's people. God rose up male priests and prophets and kings in Israel to lead his people. And then we get all the way to the ministry of Jesus. And although Jesus had many women disciples that were significant to his ministry, he chose 12 men as apostles. And then those men eventually passed off uh, authority to lead the church to the elders who were men. And so God has expected a lot from men. And when men rise to that occasion... When men assume that responsibility that God's given them in righteousness, society, homes, marriages, children, churches are blessed. But when men fail and do not 
assume this responsibility. Do not provide and protect and defend from evil. When they don't lead spiritually, everything crumbles in culture, in the family, in the church. And again, this is why it's so important as a church that we get these issues right, because it affects our homes, and then it affects the whole of the culture. It just goes back, it goes back to the garden, doesn't it? Adam failing to protect Eve from the serpent. He should have protected her from the serpent. He didn't. Then what do we see with his sons? Cain and Abel. Now, I don't know however much blame you want to put on Adam for his sons fighting and murdering the other, uh, but there's failure in the second generation of men. And then listen to this in Genesis 4. Interestingly, it says, to Seth, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so from the ashes uh, and rubble of previous male failures, men rose up to do what? To call on the name of the Lord. And, and, and look, we, we can back up a few weeks, and we saw how, how we're all, but especially men, are to be leaders in culture, or to be transforming and affecting culture. And what did Paul say in verse 1? First of all, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those who are in places of authority, that we, who's the we? Not only just the men, our wives, our children, all of the rest of society, or, or all of the rest of Christians, would be able to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. But what does he call them to first? Prayer. Prayer. Ian Bounds says, Paul calls a halt and lays a levy on men for prayer. Put the men to praying is Paul's unfailing remedy for great evils in the church, in the state, in politics, in business, in home. Put the men to praying. Then politics will be cleansed. Business will be thriftier. The church will be holier. The home will be sweeter. Prayer is not an afterthought for the Apostle Paul. It is not what you do once your politics and your plans and all these things fail. Oh, I guess we probably should now pray. It is of first importance. And how we change wicked rulers and how we change structures and systems in society Pray for all people. Men, you know, we should always have names, specific names of people we're praying for and leading our families to pray for. Verse 8, I desire then in every place the men should pray. Let me say something to the ladies. Just don't think that just because he's emphasizing prayer for men doesn't mean your prayers don't matter. Okay? I shouldn't. I I know I probably don't even have to say this. Only God knows how much has been done in and through this church historically through the prayers of the women. Okay, we have many women who have prayed much over the years in this church. So thankful for the women. I want to say to the children: Don't think that it's because it's emphasizing men. You aren't to be praying. Every child should be able to learn how to pray from a young age. And join us in these things. But here, here's what's unfortunate. Is that in many churches, if a child wants to learn to pray, 
can he look to the men? Can he find it in his father? Can he find it in his grandfather? You know, many men, and I'm speaking again generally about our generation, are prayerless or near prayerless. Struggling to lead the family to pray for a meal, much less lead them in family worship. Many putting their kids to bed without prayer. Beginning a new day without prayer. Even in church gatherings. I mean, here, being present, but is there prayer happening as we pray? I'm speaking again of a generation in our day who I I believe uh, inherited and were passed on a prayerlessness from the generation before them. Who inherited and passed on a prayerlessness from the generation before them. And look at, look at Paul's command to Timothy here. What is it? Is it plural or singular? Men. That's plural. It implies more than one man should be praying in the corporate gathering. How long did it take the early church to turn that into a singular command? Men. To man. As in a man. We'll just have one man pray. We see this in the early church. It doesn't take long studying the early church fathers, Justin Martyr and uh, AD 120. We already see evidences of corporate prayer and men leading in that turning into uh, a particular man who prays. We see corrupt Catholic liturgies where free prayer was abolished altogether so that certain prayers by priests were given often in Latin, which people didn't even understand. I mean, long stretches of church history where there's very little genuine prayer even being given by anyone. Until the Reformation, one of the great great, uh, discoveries, I mean, obviously the greatest discovery of a rediscovery in the Reformation was the Scriptures themselves. But I would put after that the centrality of prayer and, and really men beginning to lead in that again. And the Puritans coming after, uh, a century or two after, and really putting verse 8 back into centrality that men must be leaders in corporate prayer and the gathering. But guys, I mean, when we look at the church abroad in our nation, how many churches really take serious verse 8 here? That the men be leading in, in prayer? In every place, men should lift holy hands in prayer. I mean, but, and think back at where we started. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. That's where we started. A devotion to prayer, corporately. And where are we? We've backtracked at best. Now, I'm not preaching a sermon to every single church out in the culture today. I'm talking to us. So I'm going to say to our kind of reformed uh, type churches, I think, and, and especially in ours, men, I think most all of us as men understand the need for our leadership as husbands and fathers. I think that's well understood in our church. Um, I think it's well understood that men should be the ones uh, preaching and pastoring the church. Those aren't debates in, in our church. Uh, those things are understood. I would wonder though, if there's as good of understanding about the importance of men leading in prayer, which Paul seems to clearly call for in this passage. 
He doesn't say in every place women lift up holy hands in prayer. He, he lays it upon the men. And then he deals with the women on other issues. One commentator says there's no reasonable doubt that Paul is here speaking of public worship in the congregation. The whole context implies it. Some of the directions would have scarcely been intelligible if it were supposed that the apostle is thinking of private devotions or family prayer in Christian households. And we are not to suppose that it is uh, indirectly finding faults with other forms of worship. So, for, so this doesn't apply. We're not saying that, uh, that only men can pray in our prayer meeting before the service or it's not appropriate for women to pray in a city group or, or in any other context. But in, in the corporate gathering, it seems he puts the primary responsibility of leadership for the men to pray. I'm happy to talk with anybody who wants to talk through that more. Um, but, but I think that that is, that is what God is saying in verse 8. And I, let me just say some, one last thing on this point. You know, there's two men. I've, I've been able to pastor with, with multiple men over the years. And, but two men I've been able to pastor with longer than any others. And that's uh, Pastor Kent Langham and Cody Matthews, uh, who's now our, a missionary of ours in Peru. And the thing I love and respect about both of these men more than anything else both of them are gifted in teaching and in uh, many things. They're men of prayer. And anybody who knows them knows that when they get up and pray publicly, this is, this is one little tiny moment of a whole life of prayer throughout the week that these men have. They've certainly gained my respect and I think the respect of many and have progressed much in the faith from a young age because they were men of prayer. We can't downplay that. It's not that they just are smart and read the bunch of verses or more books than everybody else. Did prayer not set them apart in some unique way? We, we can't overlook how important this is. Uh, let me move us into the second thing to notice here. Men leading in zealous worship. I, I really think this is a call to, for men to be leaders in zeal in the corporate setting. Lifting hands. I mean, it, there's no way that can imply apathy. I'm sorry. There's just no way you can take it and go, these guys are falling asleep in the service every week. These guys could care less when the songs start. They're silent. They're just mumbling. There's no way you can get that. Lifting holy hands in prayer. These, these men are praying, lifting holy hands. There's, it clearly implies some zeal. Some passion. Uh, what do we make of the hands raised in ancient, uh, early ancient Christian monuments? Frequently, uh, Christians are depicted as having their hands raised. This is a posture uh, of prayer and of worship. Constantine knew this. He depicted himself on coins, uh, looking upward, praying with hands stretched to God. And it, and it really, but it, more than that, it draws off of an Old Testament pattern that Paul's assuming of the men in Ephesus. So for example, in Nehemiah 8, 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, lifting up their hands. 1 Kings eight twenty two. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Psalm 28.2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands. 
Psalm 63, 4, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Uh, Psalm 141, 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting of my hands as an evening sacrifice. So the connecting of prayer with the lifting of hands is a repeated thing. And I think Paul to these Christians in Ephesus is assuming those categories. He's saying, of course, the men will raise their hands at moments. I don't think every man has to have their hands raised in every prayer and every song. It's not what I think he's saying. I'm just, I think he's assuming that it will happen in the same way that we will bow in prayer at times. That will be a, an appropriate posture. That hands raised is an appropriate posture. And again, let me focus this on men. I think it is sinful for someone who professes the name of Christ, who's a woman or who's a child, who has no zeal in corporate worship, no passion or evident love for the Lord. But there is something entirely more wicked to see a Christian man who genuinely knows and loves the Lord but has no zeal in corporate worship. There really is. There's something more wrong about that. And guys, look, I know what church I'm speaking to here. Okay, I'm a part of it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a producer of the culture of this church. We aren't, we've never been accused of being charismatic. Okay, let me say it like that. <laughs> of being overly energetic and out of control. That is not an accusation we've ever received. Uh, many of us are very comfortable with commands like 1 Corinthians uh, 14.40 about the corporate worship setting that says, let all things be done decently and in what? Order, all right? We love that verse. We're like, that one feels good. I can handle that. We're uncomfortable with flags and dancing in the aisles and things like this. These, these are uncomfortable for us. Um, but think of these two commands. Don't ever mistake zeal with meaning, uh, or if you have order, you can't have zeal. Don't ever mistake those two things. So we have 1 Corinthians 14.40 that commands in public worship, let all things be done decently and in order. That is true. But we have also Romans 12.8 that says the one who leads, lead with zeal. And we have right after that in verse 11 that I think applies to everyone, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that word serve could be translated worship, worshiping the Lord with zeal, commanded to everyone. Brothers, think about this. What, what, it, what would it have done to you as a child if you looked over at your father and worshiped? And you see him disinterested in the sermon and the singing and all elements of the service. But then he goes home. He turns on that TV. And he's intense. He is focused. He is engaged. What is that? What type of confusion might that create in the mind of a child? What, what might it do to the heart of a wife who's called to submit to a man's leadership and then she looks over at him and he's, in, he's unengaged. She has to drag him to church every week. What, what does that do to your heart? That this is, this is the spiritual leader. And yet I'm having to lead him. How much it affects the family when the one with authority over them lacks zeal for God and worship. 
And I really do think, brothers, and I, I put myself in this category as well, the problems in the culture, the problems in the church, we can't blame the women and the children ultimately. It, it ultimately is our problem. It's many failures from us as men. And may it may, may be the, the central problem that begins to cause the other problems is that we failed to lift up holy hands in prayer. Which leads to the third and final point. These aren't just any hands. It's not a mere formality that Paul's calling for. He calls for holy men. Look back at verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting up holy hands. Tertullian, speaking of men's holy hands, might have, uh, <laughs> he may have stretched this too far, um, but he's not that far off when he says, quote, the arms are spread in prayer in memory of the crucifixion. Slightly raised at times in an attitude of a humble spirit. Then he says, the Jews in his day did not raise the hands in prayer. You say, why, would, why is that? Well, he, this is what Tertullian says. The reason they don't raise them is that they were stained with the blood of the prophets and of Christ. And he suggests that Christians' hands are lifted up because they're pure from murder and other sins. Not that their hands haven't committed sins, but that their hands have been cleansed from their sins. Brothers, your hands in Christ are holy. They are. But they must continually be cleansed and made holy. This is, this is a, a command in James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. I think that most immediately applies to prayer. Draw near to God and He will uh, draw near to you. And then the first thing He says after that, Cleanse your hands. What, what tense is that word cleanse? It's an ongoing, present tense, imperative action. Something you do and you keep doing. Cleanse. We keep cleansing our hands. So here, here's what I'm saying. You don't come to worship with defiled hands in your pockets, sitting carelessly, apathetically. But men of God, we know we've defiled our hands during the week at times. You still raise them to God. And you confess to God, cleanse my defiled hands that have served self this week, that have not honored you this week, that have I've shaken wicked fists and had anger. Cleanse the hands, Lord. I dedicate these hands to you. What does holiness mean? It means set apart. These hands are set apart for you, God. I consecrate them again to a week of service. What do men do with their hands? They work. So what are we saying to God every week? We're saying, these hands are yours. My whole week ahead of me is yours. I dedicate myself to you. You see this? Every Christian man can do this every week and should do this every week. He says, lifting up holy hands, and then look at what he says after it, without anger or quarreling. Without anger or quarreling. I think these are two things, as I said at the beginning, that men in every church will struggle with these two things. They're particular struggles to men. Um, I, uh, I got back on social media. I was off of social media for a number of years and got back on a few years ago. 
and have, have since then built a lot of friendships, uh, social media friendships, I guess you call them, uh, with other pastors, other theologians and authors and professors and different, and other Christians outside of Pensacola, outside of Pensacola. And um, one thing that's been striking to me is how there's this constant, never-ending quarreling among Christian brothers. Maybe you've noticed it. On the internet, it seems to promote this. It's like it never ends. It goes from one theological issue to some cultural issue, back to some new theological issue, back to some other cultural issue, and it never ends. And you don't see the women getting into it like the men. There's, there's this need to quarrel. You, what, what is another... Uh, and look, let me qualify one more thing here. There is a time to defend the faith, okay? There's times that you're sinful if you don't speak up and defend the faith, all right? But there are many times we need to be silent and we need wisdom to know and to not be a quarrelsome man. I think prayer guards us from excessive quarreling, not just with other men, but with our spouse, family members, uh, because what does prayer do to us? It humbles us. It puts us in our place and it causes us to enter into or, or not enter into many unnecessary disputes. I think prayer also affects a man's anger. You know, anger can be a good thing. I think God gives men maybe a greater inclination toward this emotion because it can be used for good. It can be harnessed to protect and provide. There are good uses for anger, but it also can do as we know, much destruction. And so prayer can affect maybe outbursts of anger and things like this, but there's more subtle ways that men deal with anger, brothers. We know this. Frustration is a word we could use. Just being cynical, critical, complaining, or forms of anger. How might prayer change your spirit and how you live a life full of thankfulness? and not grumbling and complaining and whining about all these things and being critical. So I think Paul's saying, if men will devote themselves, lift holy hands to prayer in the Lord's service every week, it will affect these other areas because it contradicts these other areas. You can't disconnect prayer from holiness. They always go together. Prayer will increase your holiness and holiness will cause you to pray. And I think many times as men, we struggle with holiness to the degree in which we neglect prayer. Brothers, how many many men give themselves to sermons, give themselves to books, uh, give themselves over to counselors and accountability, give themselves to even honesty with their wives? But how few of those same men have given themselves, truly given themselves over to prayer for the sake of holiness? I mean, how many men have really gotten serious about confessing the sin that's being committed? Confessing. I mean, if you have to multiple times a day, confessing your sin before the Lord. To to near beg a brother or a pastor or some man that you respect, would you please pray for me to grow in holiness in this particular area? And near beg a brother to do it for you. To really get serious about prayer. How many men have obeyed the command to go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret? And then it 
that is followed by a promise, and your Father who is in secret will what? Reward you. How many men have really taken heed to Christ's command, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? Prayer affects holiness. Holiness cannot be disconnected from prayer. If you can get a man, any of us, if God can get any one of us men praying, a lot of other things are going to go right in our life. That's why I think he, he focuses on this. Paul does with Timothy. If you can just get these men praying, a lot of other stuff, it, that man's not living in unrepentant sexual immorality and devoting himself to prayer every week. That, that man's not neglecting his wife and kids, obsessed with work, greedy for gain, pursuing all the pleasures of the world if he's devoting himself to prayer. It just, it's too contradictory. You can't do both. If, if a man is, is giving himself to prayer, how can he idolize work? There, there's too much contradiction. If you give yourself to prayer, you can't. You can't idolize these other things. Do you see? The, the centrality of prayer has this way of pushing out all the other things out of our hearts and lives that should not be there. Ian Bounds says, what the church needs today is not more machinery. It is not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Spirit can use, men of prayer. Men mighty in prayer. The Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come upon machinery, but upon men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Jesus said men ought to always pray and not lose heart. And many men, we want to be strong in many areas. And any man who's strong in any area needs to say, am I strong in prayer? And what would it take for me to become strong in prayer? Again, Ian e. Bounds uh, said, men who know how to use this weapon of prayer are God's best soldiers, His mightiest leaders. Praying men are the men that have done so much for God in the past. They're the ones who have won the victories for God and spoiled His foes. They're the ones who have set up a kingdom in the very camps of His enemies. For praying men, holy men, we are looking. Men whose presence in the church will make it like a censer of holiness, incense, flaming up to God. And then he goes on and he says, Strip Moses of his power in prayer, and the crown is taken from his head, and the food and fire of his faith are gone. Elijah, without praying, would have had no place in divine delegation. His life cowardly, its energy and fire gone. Without Elijah's praying, the Jordan would never have yielded the sake of the mantle, nor the stern of the angel of death have honored him in the chariots and the horses of fire. And he mentions Paul and Luther and Wesley. What would have these chosen one of God be without the distinguishing and controlling element of prayer? And, and look, there, there will be men in every generation who will do many, many things without prayer. They just will. They're movers and shakers. They're able to do a lot of things in the arm of the flesh. And you know what Jesus said about it all? He said the day, meaning the day of judgment, will disclose what was really done for me and done by the Spirit, done in dependence on Him. We need to be careful judging with our eyes 
what we're really accomplishing if it isn't in dependence on God. Many men beat their chests, their masculine chests without prayer, but if there's no prayer, is it, is it biblical masculinity that they have? Is it, can you distinguish it at all from cultural masculinity if there's no prayer? Guys, why, why isn't prayer a distinguishing trait of biblical masculinity? Why isn't prayer a distinguishing trait of biblical manhood? You know what? It is. It is a distinguishing trait of biblical manhood. It's a central one. But many people don't want biblical masculinity. They want cultural masculinity that's been Christianized a little. But Paul puts this as first priority for men, that they be men of prayer. And look, if Jesus is our standard for masculinity, which he is, what should we do as men but look to Christ and say, what did he prioritize? Was prayer a central part of Christ's life as the man that we're all to imitate? And, and think about the men who are closest to Christ, those 12 men that walked with him and lived with him for three years. They had a question they asked Christ. It was really the, the one question they asked. They'd, been, they'd seen his miracles. They'd seen all these things that he had done. And what did they come up to him and ask? They said, would you teach us to pray, Lord? Would you teach us to pray? And then listen to the phrase that comes after that. Would you teach us to pray as John taught his disciples? That's interesting. Because if you know anything about John the Baptist, John the Baptist had a massive successful preaching ministry, but he spent the whole first part of his life in prayer. And then he preached for six months and, and his ministry was thousands in the ancient world, which is a, I mean, it was a Billy Graham type ministry John the Baptist had, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the first of the New Testament preachers. And you know what? John the Baptist, to our knowledge, didn't train preachers. He must have been training men to pray because he says, can you teach us, Jesus, how to pray like John taught his disciples? Th this is... This is something we need to strive to grow. And here's three practical things that I, I think, very quickly. Um, when they asked Jesus how to pray, what did Jesus say? He said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he goes through the prayer. So first priority number one, just pray the Lord's Prayer every day. You're directly answering and, and learning from what Jesus said you should be praying. Pray the Lord's Prayer every day. You can expound on it a little bit. Turn it into a three or four minute prayer. Build out those categories in prayer every morning. Second, have a place to pray. In Luke 11, the passage I was referring to, uh, it says that they found Jesus in a certain place. So they're looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's off praying. Oh, well, we know where that is. He had a certain place he prayed. You know what? It's really hard to pray in a different location all the time. It really is. Jesus had a particular place he prayed or places that he would go to pray and the disciples knew exactly where to find him when they knew he was praying. That really is helpful in prayer to have a place. Jesus said, go into your room and shut the door. Here's how I would say it in our modern culture. Don't take your phone with you. Wherever you go, just leave your phone away. That will not help you with prayer. And then thirdly, pray with others as our passage instructs 
men, plural, lifting up holy hands in prayer. We're doing this together. It's way easier to pray with other believers. And we just prayed for 45 minutes before the service. And that's really easy to do because there's a bunch of us. And it's always easier to pray with other believers. Those are good starting points with prayer. Let me just say this, uh, moving toward closing. Um, it is well documented with men, all those that are do research on men, that men are doers. Right? Men are at their best when they're accomplishing something, when they're getting something done. And I find this interesting because nothing gets more done than prayer. The men who care most about being productive in the world should care most about prayer because there's nothing more productive than praying. There's nothing that accomplishes more in God's economy than prayer. There's nothing that does more for the local church than men who labor in prayer for her. Luther said, I have so much to do in a day, I'll never get it done unless I spend at least the first two hours of my day in prayer. <laughs> I got so much to do. You know, the apostles starting the church. They got this new church. It's growing rapidly. There's so much for the apostles to do. What do we need to do? Find some deacons so that we can devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Because we have so much to do, we have to pray. You see? As your workload and, and responsibilities increase, your prayer should increase. It is a productive thing to do with our time. And, and look, guys, we are among the churches, and there's many churches that recognize that the church has been feminized. I, I, I mean, almost everybody recognizes this. And that the men have been largely removed from many, many churches. And now many churches are trying to get men back in the church and trying to put men back in the church. And, and the question that's often asked is, what does it look like for a church to attract men? What kind of things do we need to do to attract men? That's the wrong question. The question is, what type of men does God want to worship Him? That's the question. And God wants worshiping Him holy men who prioritize prayer, especially on the Lord's Day, and who have some zeal to our worship. What, and, and why? Because there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Why do we do all this, brothers? It's because we know who our God is. And He's worthy of this. He's worthy. As we go to the table, um, I want to say, obviously not to just the men, but to all of us, I want us to think about our hands. Think about your hands for a moment. You're about to pick up in your hands uh, the drink and the bread. They'll touch your hands. Would you dare do that? Put the holy communion elements that represent the body and the holy body and blood of Christ. Would you put those in your hands if they were defiled? If your hands were defiled, would you would you dare touch? And I would say you would not. And so as we grab these, remember, my hands have been cleansed. My hands are pure, they're holy because of Christ's blood. He has cleansed me of all sin. Come remembering what Christ has done for you in the gospel, casting yourself upon Him again, thanking Him. Amen? 
brothers and sisters, uh, those of us who have been cleansed by Christ through faith in Him, who've been baptized, please uh, join us and at the table. For those of you who've been refraining and who have not, uh, you can see in your bulletin, page 2, there's some very meaningful prayers I would encourage you to pray through in this time uh, for any who'll be refraining from joining us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank You, Father, for sending a man to this earth, Your Son. He's not like us. He's just not like us. He was male like us. He was man. But He's without sin. And He alone had a clean hands and a pure heart. And He alone could ascend the hill of the Lord. And we honor You, Christ. We praise You that our salvation does not depend on ourselves. That our worship in Your church is not based on our performance in prayer or in any other thing. We thank You that You've cleansed us and You've set us apart and You have made us holy before You. Lord, remind us of these things. Help us as we take this supper to proclaim these things until You come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.